Mark chapter 11, verse 1, begins with, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. We don't know which two. And he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately... He will send it here. So we have the beginning of what's called the triumphal entry. Maybe you've heard that before. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. We saw him last on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Uh, He had taught his disciples about being a servant, that that those in the world lorded over there, the people that that serve them, and it's not supposed to be that way in the kingdom. And twice in chapter 10, once to James and John, his disciples, and once to the blind man coming out of Jericho, he says, what do you want me to do for you? And that, even though he was on his way to death, we're we're in the last week of Jesus' earthly life in his earthly body. You can't say, you know, last week of his life because he's eternal. So I can't say it that way, but uh, he's going to be crucified within the week. And even with that happening, he is still serving people. He's not going, now I'm kind of needy. I need to be taken care of uh, because this is a very tough time for me. He still has a servant's heart. And that's the word. If you want to have that servant's heart, then this is the question you have to ask of the people around you. What can I do for you? What do you want me to do? That's what a servant asks. And so he's asking that uh, on the way. They're traveling with, with pilgrims that are going to Jerusalem for the Passover, one of the three mandatory feasts where you would come and gather in Jerusalem. The population will swell. Some 200 and estimates say 250,000 lambs will be sacrificed during this Passover uh, just as, as Jesus is to be crucified. That's a, the, they would say the Kidron Valley, which is the, the Temple Mount uh, was there, and then the Kidron Valley went down, and then you had the Mount of Olives on the other side of the Kidron Valley, and the Kidron Valley is where the blood would flow from the sacrificed lambs. It would flow like a river from all the, sacri- the, the lambs being sacrificed. And so Jesus has to cross that as he goes uh, in and out, that, that Kidron Valley. What's not recorded by Mark is that uh, Jesus had been hanging out in Bethany, and that's where he sort of stays. He doesn't stay in Jerusalem. He stays in the outskirts, Bethany and Bethphage, those two little villages mentioned at the beginning of chapter 11 are about a mile and two miles from Jerusalem, uh, on, located on the Mount of Olives. And if you've never been to Israel, uh, it's, it's, they say a, year, or a trip to Israel is worth two years of seminary. It's a great trip. You get to see all these things, walk down the road from the Mount of Olives and look at the Temple Mount. It's just fantastic. So uh, you see where the Mount of Olives is in relationship to the Temple, and it's just across this valley, and that's where those two villages were, just a couple miles away. And that's where Lazarus, you remember Lazarus from, from the Gospel of John. We learn about Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Well, what's happened between the healing of blind Bartimaeus and now the triumphal entry is Jesus had spent some time with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in their house. Lazarus was sick. And Jesus comes four days later and he's, they accuse him of being late. And what's he do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. That just happened. And so a lot of people have heard about this. So a lot of people, word is spreading. Jesus' reputation is getting more and more massive. And, and so this whole group is coming in. Matter of fact, the Pharisees will say, 
the whole world has gone after him. Everybody in that temple area is talking about Jesus. Also in the Gospel of John, you find out that it was during that evening that Mary had broken that vial of spikenard, that costly ointment, and anointed Jesus with it. And that smell would have spread all throughout the, uh, all throughout the house. And so it's quite possible that if you can picture in your mind's eye your senses, all the senses of the smells of the temple, as Jesus comes in, as he passes by uh, into the temple, he still smells like that spikenard that Mary anointed him with. As he's coming in, he sends two disciples to go. Uh, he, he needs something to ride in on, and for a couple of reasons. This is not the first time he's been to Jerusalem. He's been here before, but never like this. So much in his past, you remember, he would heal someone, and then what would he say? Now, don't tell anybody. And then he'd heal someone else, he'd say, don't tell anybody. But now the people are going to be praising him, and he's not going to tell them to stop. Because now, as it were, it's showtime, meaning that now is the time he's entering in as the king. He would say, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And now the time has come. He's coming in as a king. So Matthew, to fulfill Scripture, to fulfill an Old Testament passage in Zechariah, I believe it is, uh, that says, hey, your king is coming to you lowly riding on a donkey. So Jesus is going to clearly be sending a sign. He's going to be telling exactly who he is, fulfilling a I am, you know that passage about your king, and here I am riding on a donkey. I don't know if you took math, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? That's a mathematical equation. If the scripture says your king is riding on a donkey, and Jesus is riding on a donkey, guess what? Jesus is your king. Okay, we got that. And that's what he's trying to tell them. And so, but he doesn't own a donkey, he's poor. What kind, you know, interesting, the king grew up as a carpenter. And he's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And he comes riding in. Now, he has to borrow a car. When's the last time you could think of a world leader had to borrow a vehicle? And not only that, he doesn't find this beautiful white horse and chariot to come in on. What's he come in on? He comes in on a donkey. Now, I don't know if you've ever messed with donkeys before. But many of you know I worked with horses before I was a pastor. And a donkey is a stubborn animal. Now, this that, he, that he's asking for is a colt, a young donkey, never been ridden before. That is one of the greatest miracles, I think, that Jesus gets on and rides this thing. Somehow, this thing submits to him. I used to say, a donkey will step on you with one foot, kick you with the other, and make the whole thing look like it was your fault. They're just smart and stubborn. And, well, and I like this. I like this about Jesus. I just do, I, you know, there's just something, when you look at leaders and you look at how much People say, well, I've got to hold up my image. I, I've got an image to keep. I'm the CEO of this company, or I'm the principal of this school, or I'm the, the chief of this department, and I've got the, uh, an image to uphold. So you sort of have to create an image for yourself so people actually believe that you are who you say you are. And Jesus has no issues with that. He's a king, yet has no problem coming in on a donkey in this very humble manner. It's just not something you see every day. I, I love that about Gandhi. I mean, just another world leader, when he would travel to see diplomats, Winston Churchill or whoever he was going to visit, um, he would take 
the third class on the train or wherever he was, however he was riding. And they would say to him, you know, he's got his goat with him and all, you know, interesting guy. And, and they would say, Gandhi, why do you travel third class? And he said, because there's no fourth class. I thought, wow, interesting attitude for a leader to have. And when you're, this is the thing about identity. This is the thing about being secure in who you are. Jesus was secure in who he was. He didn't have anything to prove to anybody else. So much of our life, we're just trying to prove that we're something to other people. And so we use the kind of car we buy, the kind of clothes, the labels on our clothes. All these things are meant to send a message that we've arrived, that we're somebody. Jesus never feels that way. He never feels like he's got to prove that. Why? In the Gospel of John, we learn just before he bends down to wash the disciples' feet, he prays and he expresses the fact that he knows where he is from and where he's going. He's come from God. He's going back to God. If you know those two things, everything in the middle is a piece of cake. I've come from God. I'm made in his image. I know who I am. I know what I'm supposed to be. I know where I've come from. I'm saved by grace through faith, not my own works, not my own image. So my future is secure. My past is secure. My future is secure. In between, I don't have to prove anything. I can just be who God made me to be. And, and so we see that. We just see that lived out in Jesus. I love that. So go get the donkey. And, and what, but Jesus, what if they won't give it to us? Well, tell them the Lord has need of it. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. So they're, you know, they go, they find a donkey, just as Jesus said, and they untie the thing, and they start to walk away with it. And the owners, no doubt, see it and go, hey, hey, wait, that's our donkey. Where are you going? That's my pickup truck. You're stealing my pickup. If it was a thoroughbred, it'd be a different story. It'd be like a race car. But those who, some of those who stood there said to them, Where, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. What did they say? They said, hey, the Lord has need of it. Oh, we didn't know that. Jesus has need of it? I mean, even just the fact that Jesus would have a need. Isn't that incredible? That God would come on the earth, take on human flesh, and, and allow himself to have need, to be hungry, to have need of transportation. Not just to be born, you know, not born in a palace, not born uh, with a silver spoon in his mouth, but born poor. The Lord has need of it. Would that be enough for you? What is it that in your life that you own that Jesus goes, I have need of that. I really need, you know, you got a vehicle and it's a van and it can carry a lot of people and we really need people to, there's some people that can't get to church. They don't drive. They don't have licenses. They live, you know, your car, the Lord has need of it. Your skills, whatever it is in your life, you go, what? Your time. The Lord has need of it. And in one sense, God has need of nothing. But in the other sense, he's chosen to work through people and generosity and on the earth. And so there may be something in your life that you know, you go, oh, this is mine. And then you hear, well, oh, the Lord has need of it. Oh, okay, well, I, yes. Lord, this is your house. Lord, this is your car. Lord, this is your time. And so they, they let him have the donkey. Probably a pretty valuable little guy, I'm sure. Then they brought him the colt, uh, brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it as sort of a makeshift saddle. And he sat on it and many spread their clothes on the road and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna, which means save now 
in case you were wondering. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So this little section right here is an excerpt from Psalm 118, which is part of what's called the Hillel, which is a group of six psalms, Psalm 113, all the way up to Psalm 118, that would be sang, uh, excuse me, sung back and forth uh, between people, between groups of people during the various festivals and feasts. Uh, this is one of them, the Passover. So they're singing this, and they're now applying it to Jesus as he comes in. They're giving him a kingly welcome, and he's not stopping them. Matter of fact, the Pharisees would say, hey, Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. Tell, tell these people to, to be quiet. And Jesus said, if they were to be quiet, what would happen? You know, even the stones would cry out. Go ahead, you try to stop them. You, the, stones will, the, the stones will start singing. It's appropriate to praise me as I come in. Because I'm coming as the king. This is the time. And, and I, think it's, uh, I think it's Luke that says, records Jesus saying, oh, if you only knew, Jerusalem, that, that this is your day. That this is the day that I bring those things that are making for your peace. But they, they, uh, their eyes were closed to it. They didn't see it. They wouldn't see it is the problem. So he comes in as the, with all of these greetings, all the crowd, all of the, the, the multitudes praising him. Uh, they have an expectation, don't they? What's their expectation? What do you think they're hoping for with this guy? Remember, they have not had their own well, in some ways, they've kept somewhat of an identity, but they've not been able to rule over themselves. We can't imagine that as a country. Uh, that's how our country started, coming out from under British rule. But now we've been free since those days, and we rule ourselves. But it's hard for us to imagine what it would be for someone else to make the rules for us as a country. And the Jews understood that. So they're coming, they're thinking, this is the guy, Jesus is the, the Savior, he's the one that's going to come, and he's going to go to the palace, and he's going to lead an uprising, and we're going to finally take Jerusalem back, militarily speaking. That's what they're expecting. That's why they're cheering. That's what their hope is in. But that's not what's going to happen, is it? And I find that a lot of people oftentimes have expectations of what Jesus is going to do. Expectations of how he's going to act, what he's going to produce, how this is going to go. And oftentimes people get disappointed because Jesus didn't do or God didn't do what they thought he should. You would be no different than these people here because it's the same within the week he's going to be being crucified. And, and disciples are going to be walking away after his crucifixion and go, well, we thought he was something. Luke 24, we thought it was this was the guy, but evidently we were wrong. And I don't want to just speak to you right now. Maybe some of you have come in. Maybe your New Year's resolution was to get back to church and here you are, but in the past, you've dealt with some you know, experiences with church or with God, and he, you felt like he's let you down. Well, maybe he was doing something other than what you thought he should be doing. He was still at work. He's not a failure. Maybe your expectations were wrong. And theirs were. There's, they misunderstood. He wasn't coming to set up an earthly kingdom. He's not going to go to the palace. Where is he going to go, folks? He's going to go to the temple. He's going to deal with the spiritual side of things. So he comes into the temple, verse 11 says, and Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So it seems like an uneventful thing, right? He comes in, he looks around, he goes out. 
day one. I think this would have been uh, Sunday, as I believe the, the day that we're speaking of here, Sunday the week before his crucifixion. Um, and I think why this is in here, and I think what's important for you to know is because the next day he's going to get up early, have breakfast, or try to have breakfast, and, and head into the temple, and he's going to overturn all the tables of the money changers. He's going to deal with the corruption that's in the temple. Now, if you remember back, Jesus has cleansed the temple not once, but how many times? Twice. So he's been here early in his ministry, sees the same thing, cleanses the temple out then, then goes about his ministry, now comes back, comes back in the temple, and guess what? They're all back. All the corrupt people, all the people making a profit off of God's people, uh, they're all there again. So now if that was me, I'd probably lost it. I mean, you know, we, you know, we can't even, we try to drive around the circle up there on Route 53 and someone cuts us off or someone pulls in front of us and we lose it, you know. We're so emotional, emotionally driven. And I'm not saying being emotional is bad, but I'm saying if you let your emotions drive your behavior, that can be bad. How many of you have ever written an email at an emotional time and regretted sending it? Or maybe you wrote it and were smart enough not to send it and wait and change your mind later on. See, because we get emotional. And so Jesus sees all this, but it's late, and he goes and he says, well, let's, let's go home and get some sleep. We'll deal with this tomorrow. Wow. Maybe sometimes it's good to say, you know what, maybe I don't need to deal with this right now. Maybe now's not a good time for me to deal with it. doesn't need to happen now. Uh, but I want you to see, this is important to know, Jesus is absolutely and completely in control of everything, including himself. Because this is not something that's being put on Jesus. All that he's going to go through in the temple, being crucified, being beaten, all that, he is in control of the whole thing. None of this is surprising to him. None of this catches him off guard. So when he sees all this, he's able to exercise self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. So you might say, well, yeah, I need more self-control. I am, I've done some emotionally driven things and it's really come back to haunt me. It's really caused me to have a lot of trouble. I need more self-control. Well, the Bible would actually say you need more of the Holy Spirit. Because self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, begins with love and ends with self-control. Jesus has all of those in his life. And self-control is just a result. Self-control is not something you produce. Self-control is something God produces in you. And we see it in Jesus. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. Speaking of Jesus. So they've gone back, gone to bed. Now they're coming back out uh, from Mary, Martha, Lazarus' house, back into the, to the city, back to the temple. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat from you ever again. Well, this would make it seem like Jesus has real issues, doesn't it? <laughs> like he's got real, real anger issues. And this is why I think I made the point before to know that this is not Jesus just reacting. He's, he's hungry in the morning. You know, I know how I am if I don't get breakfast, maybe how you are when you don't get your coffee. And he heads out and he sees a fig tree and it doesn't have any figs on it. And he curses it. And the interesting thing about that is that Mark says it wasn't the season for figs. So who is he to blame the tree? I mean, here is Jesus getting into an argument with a tree. This is their king coming in. And you, you scratch your head. This is one of the strangest stories in the New Testament. And by the way, it's the only miracle that Jesus actually uses his power 
to destroy. You never see that. He's always using his power to give life or to heal. This is the only miracle where he actually uses his power to destroy part of his creation. And he's sovereign over his creation. He can do that if he wants to. Um, he uses it as an illustration. So the issue is, it's not being unfair. You would think, well, he's so unfair. I mean, the poor tree, it wasn't time for figs. And he was expecting, and, well, I know that feeling. God has unrealistic expectations of me. And that's why he, he's so hard on me. No, no, no. That's not what's being said here. What's being said here is that before this, this is April, and, and the fig trees would start to leaf out. But just before they did, they would get sort of these pre-season figs, these small buds and small figs that would develop. And if they got those, that meant that later on in the season, that tree would have full-grown figs in the fall, whenever they would come on later in the summer and in the fall. So the, the leaves were an indication that fruit should already be present. But when he gets to the tree, the, the, those little tiny uh, buds, those little th- that would be eaten by the poor. This isn't somebody's tree that they own in their backyard. You know, he's not hopped the fence to get to pick these. This is just growing wild by the side of the road. So when he sees it, um, he expects those little guys to be there so he can eat them, but they're not there. And what for him it represents, this life lesson he gives, is uh, the appearance of life, but without fruit. The appearance of, of health, but without actually having any fruit. So the tree had an outward look of being alive and, and being fruitful, but when you get up close to it, when you get inside, when you get right next to it, you see there's really no fruit there after all. Which the fig tree is often representative of who? Of Israel. Where's Jesus on his way to? He's on his way into the temple. Again, the illustration is clear. I think for them, for us, this fig tree simply illustrates religious Israel and their fruitlessness. Even though they have all the rituals, all the clothing, all the sacrifices, all that outward stuff, there's really no fruit to God. Does that make sense? Hope that. And, and he'll explain a little bit more about this as we go on. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. So as he comes into the temple, he sees and just, I mean, he looks around. Imagine what he would have thought, how he would have responded. It's going into the temple, this place that is supposed to be a place of worship, this place where he's supposed to be able to draw close to God. And in this outer court around the temple was called the court of the Gentiles. A Gentile is just a non-Jew. It's not a Jewish person. And there were Gentiles that were called God-fearers. They were people that never converted to Judaism, but they still appreciated and loved and worshipped the God of the Jews. So they could come into this court of the Gentiles and pray and worship God from there. They couldn't come any closer to the, to the temple or in, inside the temple, but that's where they could come. And that area, a fairly large area, had become filled with commercialism. With people buying and selling and haggling and bartering and trading and all that and just all the noise and, and, and they had, uh, during these, these feasts. So if you were traveling for the Passover, let's say the Passover, you know, uh, relative to us, let's say the Passover at Jerusalem's in Kansas and you got to make the trip from here to Kansas, you know, however far you got to go. And, and you couldn't really carry your sacrifices all that way. So they made an allowance that you could bring the money, the monetary equivalent of whatever you were going to 
you were going to sacrifice. So if you were going to buy a sheep, you'd, instead of bringing a sheep with you to sacrifice, you'd bring 20 bucks. And when you get there, you'd go to the booth, you know, the sheep buying booth, and you'd say, I'll take a sheep for sacrifice, and, and you'd buy one. And that was the way it was supposed to work. You could do that. The problem was, and this is why Jesus says, it's supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. The problem was, they were ripping people off left and right, taking advantage of people that were honestly and genuinely coming to seek God. They were feeding on them and abusing them. And God says, I don't like that. So if you've ever said that, you say, well, you know, God I like, but it's, I've seen the problems with religion. I've seen the abusiveness of religion. Jesus would say, me too. I agree. So, when you would come, you'd bring, you'd bring your money, and you, but you brought the wrong currency. See, the currency is different. So you'd have to go to the money changer's table. You'd have to exchange your currency. Because the Roman coins have whose picture on it? Caesar's picture. And they, you know, the Jews are not into images. So you can't bring that into the temple. So you've got to go to the money changer. You've got to change your, your currency for temple shekels. And you know what the problem was? Is they gave you a horrible exchange rate. So they would rip you off when you were exchanging money. Then now finally, you know, you get your money and then you got to go buy a lamb or a goat or whatever it is, a dove you're going to buy. So you go to the next table and there's, there's, you know, uh, the guy selling, you know, Abraham's uh, sheep for sale and you got to go find one and you say, okay, I'll take that one. And the price, you ever, you ever go to Disney? Like they jack the prices up or wherever it is you might be where they, they've got you. You go, when's the last time you've been to the movies? How much is popcorn at the movies now? You know what popcorn costs to make? See, they don't make any money off the movie itself. They barely break even. The, the, the movie companies charge so much. They don't make any money showing the movie. They got to make all of their profit off of the condiments and off of all the things that you buy. So the, how many of you ever, like, if you pay that for that popcorn, be like, oh, I got to pay it. I don't just eat popcorn, but I'll pay it anyway. And you know, you know that feeling. Like, I know I'm being ripped off, but here we are, and we're, we're going into worship, and we need something to sacrifice. And so the lambs are like triple price. So you've already gotten ripped off once when you exchange your money. Now you get ripped off again when you buy your lamb. And so already there's this rotten taste in your mouth about coming to the temple for worship. And that's not what God wants. And the people that were in charge of all this were the priests. The high priest was a guy named Annas, uh, well, actually, his son-in-law was the high priest at this time. His name was Caiaphas. But these, this exchange thing, this bazaar, this marketplace, was called the Bazaar of Annas. And he made boatloads of money off of people who wanted to worship. And that's why he says, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. A den is a safe place. It's a place of refuge. It's a hideout. And, and it's interesting, if you like to circle words in, in your Bible, you can circle the word thieves and actually put next to that robbers. Robbers is a better translation. Thieves in Greek is the word klepto. That's the, the word for a thief. A thief is someone who steals secretly. Where, what do we get from klepto? Kleptomaniac, someone who is compelled to steal stuff. But usually it's secretly and privately. That's not the word used here. The word used here for th- translated thieves is better translated robbers Robbers steal in groups like bands. That's why they call them bandits. And they do it forcefully and openly. 
God's temple, God's house, had been made a safe haven for people who ripped people off openly. Now that would never happen in today's religious world. But I just want to, I just want to make sure you guys understand that maybe you've said, you know, I've avoided church for so long because of all the corruption, because of all the problems, all the, the abuses of people. Jesus would say, I agree. I'm with you. And so there he is. He goes in the temple and what's he do? He just completely under control. He starts tossing over tables. People are just like, what in the world is this guy doing? Money's flying, doves are flying. I mean, just creating havoc. No one's stopping him. Why is he so mad? God cares about his people. I think back to Old Testament story about two guys, pastor's kids, named Hophni and Phinehas, sons of Eli the priest. The Bible says of them they were corrupt and they did not know the Lord. Just because you're a pastor, just because you're in church leadership, doesn't mean you know the Lord. And there's, I would venture to say that right now around this nation, there's a lot of pastors filling pulpits that don't know the Lord. And there's a lot of corruption. We just know it's true. So uh, they were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. They were forceful. They were demanding. They took more from people than, was, than they were supposed to. And this was the result. Therefore, this is what uh, 1 Samuel 2 says, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. God cared. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. That's what it produced. People came, but they hated coming. They knew they had to. They wanted to, but they hated it because of what was happening. I think it's very similar. When the whole time God's house was supposed to be what? My Father's house should be a house of what? Prayer. This should be a place where you can come and connect with God just to, to speak with Him, to talk to Him. To, he welcomes you into His presence. And instead of, of getting that, they were getting this abuse. God's house is still to be a house of prayer. And we're going to talk about prayer as we move on. So, so we will move on. Verse 18, And the scribes and the chief priests heard about it and sought how they might destroy Him. For they feared Him. Because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. And even before he went out of the city, uh, amidst all this, the lame, the blind are still coming to him and being healed. So he's healing people in the temple. He's doing things the priest could never do. And they're so jealous of him. They're so envious of him. They hate to see people following him and cheering for him. Because he challenges their status quo. He challenges their, their religious system. And so he leaves, uh, and, and he's going to come back the next day. So verse 20, now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree. Remember the fig tree? They saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, and it was only 24 hours ago, but remembering me like, he, he put two and two together. He's like, wait a second. He said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Peter makes note of this. And it's withered up, we learn, from the roots. The tree dried up from the roots. When something dried from the roots, it's dead. Sometimes the, the branches can look dead, the leaves can look dead, but if the root is alive, it'll come back next year. But when Jesus said that may no one ever eat of you, uh, your fruit ever again, uh, he, the, the roots dried up. He spoke it, boom, dead tree. And Peter goes, Jesus, what, what? it's withered away. 
He makes note of it. And so you, now Jesus is going to respond, and he's not going to give the response that I would have wanted him to give. I would have wanted Jesus to say, well, Peter, you see, the fig tree represents religious Israel or, or spiritual Israel. or The fig tree represents this or that. He doesn't say any of that. What's he say? Verse 22, Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Now, I didn't prepare a special New Year's message today because I thought the one we had before us was just good enough as it was. I think what greater verse could you have for this new year than this one right here? Have and keep having faith in God. Well, I had faith in God last year. Good, keep having it this year. It's not about starting well. It's about finishing well. And sometimes that's the greatest challenge. Keep having faith in God. I know the church has struggles with corruption. I know there's issues in leadership. I know you've been burned at your last church. He doesn't say have faith in the system or have faith in the leadership. He doesn't say have faith in yourself. Lord knows. He says have faith in God. Where do you put your trust? He doesn't say have faith in the psychologist, have faith in the medication, have faith in the doctors. Look, we pray when we people get surgery. You know, we're praying for the doctors. But look, all a doctor can do is put in a new organ or sew you up. He can't make that skin grow back together. That's God. I mean, amazing. The doctors would be useless without the way God has designed your body and without his healing hand in your life. We'd all look like Frankenstein if skin didn't regrow. I mean, think about it. Have faith in God. Trust, confidence. Why? He says, For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Whoa! That's huge. You see, without faith in God, church is just diminishes to some religious powerless, lifeless routine. So you can still have church without God. You know that, right? You can still have the outward. You can have the leaves without any fruit. And, and that's exactly what had come into the religious New Testament Judaism. They had all the leaves, but no fruit. No faith. Remember what Hophni and Phineas? They were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. They didn't trust the Lord. And so he says to his disciples, you guys have faith in God. If you have faith in God, you'll never struggle with having the power to see me work. With my power working through you. Look what he said. Assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, they're on the Mount of Olives. A mountain is something unmovable. And if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast in the sea, if you don't doubt in your heart, but believe those things uh, he says will be done, he'll have whatever he says. Hey, faith is the key to seeing God work. It's true. I mean, I just in looking around this room, just in talking to people, just in looking at my own life, the mountains that God has moved in my own life. And that's, you know, he's using an illustration. He's standing on the Mount of Olives and this mountain and unmovable things. says, if you have, if you just believe in your heart, guys, it's amazing what you'll see God do. But you, you gotta ask Him. You gotta come to Him. There's, 
prayer is the last thing we do. If you're religious, if you have the outward, oftentimes prayer is the last, there's no relationship, prayer is the last thing you do. If prayer is the last thing you do, that might be a symptom that you are religious, but there's no relationship. When you have a relationship with God, it's almost like talking. You begin to think something and you go, wait, I'm thinking about this. I should be praying about this. And you can take that thought and turn it into a prayer. God, you hear me thinking about this. You hear my worry about this. God, can you help me? What should I do? How do we do this? What, what can you work on my behalf, God? Prayer is so, one man said prayer is like the, the will of God is like a train and prayer is like the tracks. Try to run a train without tracks. Doesn't work. But prayer lays the foundation for the will of God to be done. And that's the interesting thing about this because I think we would all say, you know, Steve, there was a time I prayed it, and I would say this myself, there was a time I prayed for something and, and I saw that guy get healed and this thing happened, but it didn't happen for me. And I really believe because this is the passage that's used to knock people over the head with, well, if you didn't get healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith. He doesn't say have faith in faith. He doesn't say have faith in the power of your faith. He says have faith in who? In God. So, you know, how do we deal with that? What do we, how do we answer that? How do we discuss that? You know, I've said, prayed, I believed in my heart, and I didn't see it happen. Because I've been there, and you've been there. John, who was no doubt listening to this, this discussion, listening to this sermon from Jesus, he writes 1 John, and in that, he really writes the same thing. He says, hey, whenever you, whenever you need something, he says, ask God. And we know that when we ask God, he hears us when we ask and when, when we pray according to his will. Then we know that he hears us and we have the petition. Everything that you pray for that is in accordance with God's will, he will give you. He will do for you. And there's been some great and mighty things that God has done in this room. There are people that have been healed. There are people that have seen God work in tremendous ways. But how does, but will he wait for me? How does this prayer thing work? I don't know. So I pray about everything. God, is this your will? I don't know, but I'm praying about it. If it's not your will, God, then don't do it. Therefore, verse 24, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you'll have them. He's helping them to not be self-reliant, to rely on God. And the final thing he says to them, and this is also an interesting thing, they're saying, oh, pray, yes, you curse the fig tree, we're looking at these guys in Jerusalem, huh, Lord, get them. You ever pray a prayer like that? Lord, my boss, Lord, my ex-wife, get them, get them, Lord. And so just in case they would be tempted to pray that way, He says, verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, as opposed to those guys in the temple or others, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespass. Trespass is crossing the line. You've crossed the line with God. God wants to forgive you, loves you. Reconcile that relationship through forgiveness. The problem is you won't forgive others. You want something for yourself. You want something for you that you're not willing to give anybody else. So God says, now wait a second, Steve, I'd love to forgive you, but I'm seeing that this thing that you're, you're not willing to forgive others. So I'm, I can't be sure that you really understand forgiveness. I can't be sure that you really know what it really means to be 
forgiven. Because again, what better New Year's message could I preach today than forgiveness? That may be what's hindering your prayers. That may be getting in the way of you even praying right. That may be the past holding your future hostage because you're still bitter. Whenever that name comes up, oh, it just makes your blood boil. Whenever that person is mentioned, oh, just you just start to get nervous and sweaty. And you wonder why God doesn't listen to your prayers. You wonder why these things are happening in your life. And Jesus says, hey, look, guys, if you're, don't be like those hypocrites who stand up and they pray and they talk to God. And meanwhile, they're, they're trying to kill Jesus. They're plotting murder, clearly against the commandments. And yet they'll stand in, in the temple and offer these really highfalutin prayers. And Jesus says, look, guys, come around here for a minute. I don't want that to be what you do. He's already told him this once, Sermon on the Mount. When you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites who pray to be seen. He says, look, when you pray, if you're holding someone against, something against someone, if you're harboring some unforgiveness, if you're harboring some bitterness, if there's something lying there, forgive them. Let it go. Release their debt. Give it up. Why? Because it's gonna, if you can't forgive, maybe you don't know how to receive forgiveness. He says, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Now, remember, you're not, we're saved by grace through faith. But here's the deal. God says, I'm going to let you determine the measure in your own life. Remember that? Back in the Sermon on the Mount, whatever measure you measure it out, it's measured back to you. So God says, look, I'm going to deal with you in your life based on the standard you set. Isn't that awesome? If you're merciful you'll receive mercy. If you're forgiving, you'll receive forgiveness. But if you're unmerciful, well, you must not want mercy yourself. If you're unforgiving, well, you must not want forgiveness yourself. Whatever measure you use, the Bible says, it's measured back to you. So, challenging stuff. I know, man, whenever we talk about forgiveness, it's like, well, because I know there's relationships just busted and broken and a mess because we're human and we live in this real world and life is ugly and relationships are ugly and we sometimes it's on purpose. Sometimes we're just vengeful and sometimes we just say the wrong thing at the wrong time and someone gets offended and leave church because they're all mad. And, and I, man, there's times in my life where I'm like, I'd love to be forgiven. You ever have a situation like that where you've done something and you know you did it and you know you were wrong, but the person will just not let it go. And there's no way to reconcile. And maybe you're that person. It's complicated, isn't it? Doesn't have to be. You say, well, I can't, I can forgive, but I can't forget. Well, the truth is, you can't forget until you forgive. So if that tape's still playing in your mind, it's because you keep hitting replay. And until you forgive, until you let go, until you release, until you release the opportunity to collect on that debt, you'll never stop playing that tape. It'll always keep playing. Once you let it go, once you get it over to God, all of a sudden it becomes quieter and quieter. So I pray that your new year is filled with all that God has for you. That not looking back, you press forward. Can we do that, church? Amen? Amen. If I can invite Phil and the praise team to come up, I'll pray.
and we'll close. Lord, um, just as we pray, what would you do if you came in here to Calvary Chapel, Lord? What would you see? What would you overturn? What if you came into the houses of all of us gathered here? What would you see? What would, what would you pay attention to? What would you overturn in our houses, in our hearts? And Lord, help us to, to forgive. Help us to accept forgiveness for ourselves. I pray if there's any unforgiveness, bitterness, any of these things here today, that you begin to do your work in the hearts. Begin to release people. Move mountains, Lord. Move mountains of unforgiveness. Move mountains of bitterness. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name because you told us we can pray and we believe. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand.